Thank you for uh, joining us as we continue our series through the book of James. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to James chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 13. That's James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Before diving into our text this morning, I want to take a step back and ask, what, what is James telling us in this book? Why is James writing? James, as we recall, ser is serving the church in Jerusalem, but he writes for Christians scattered around the world. He tells us at the very beginning that he's writing to the Christians who are scattered around the world. And in particular, he's writing to Christians uh, who had been Jews or converts to Judaism, and they were very familiar with the Old Testament text. They were facing persecution from within Judaism for believing that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But they were also facing persecution from outside of Judaism for believing that God was a savior who would give up power and treat the poor as an equal, serving them as if they were greater than himself. So these Christians who were scattered around the world, primarily of Jewish descent or who had been converts to Judaism, they get persecuted from within Judaism, and they also get persecuted from within the secular world. So they scatter. That scattering actually led to Christianity spreading because they had to break up. They went all over the place, and where they went, they took their faith with them. But at the same time, as they were scattered around the world and bringing faith with them, they started to become like the world around them. They started to, to believe that faith is more about what you think than what you do. So they accepted one-liners, slogans, things that you might say, catchphrases, rather than actual action. They started to believe and take on a Christianized version of secularism rather than deep Christian faith. And so James writes to these Christians who are scattered across the globe to remind them that though you may call yourself Christian, you could have a lifeless faith. Paul says, I mean, James says that, they have a, that you could have a faith that is actually dead. So as he's writing to them, he's calling them into something that would remind them of what it means to live a life of vibrant, living faith. James writes this letter so that their lives, their lives can be read. We often read the scripture so that we can understand God. But sometimes we ought to read scripture so that scripture can read us. At the beginning of James, starting in chapter, in verse 20, or chapter 1, verse 22, he says this. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks at. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that God gives, the uh, law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You see, James says scripture is like a mirror. We look in a mirror so that we can see ourselves. The point of looking at scripture is so that we can see ourselves. The fool is the one who looks at scripture and forgets what they've read. And that's like looking in a mirror, seeing the blemish or the smudge on your face and forgetting to do anything about it. James says as we look at the word of God, it's like looking in a mirror. And in a sense, James is writing to these Christians who are scattered across the globe so that as they read this book, the book would read them. And so as this morning, as we think about our text in James 3, 13 to 18, rather than having the, the book give you new knowledge, 
I'd like you to think that maybe this, this section of scripture ought to be about looking in the mirror and having the scripture read you. With that, let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to your word, as we open sacred words that were written for Christians scattered around the globe, Christians who are tempted to buy into a Christianized version of secularism, Christians who were uh, tempted to believe that Christianity is these one-liners rather than what we do, Christians who are tempted to buy into a lifeless faith. May these words read our lives and by them help us to see ourselves as we truly are. And in seeing ourselves as we truly are, may we cling more faithfully to our Savior Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness." James starts by telling us, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James says, you show your wisdom by your good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But what is wisdom? When I was young, I thought I was told that knowledge was knowing things. Wisdom was knowing what to do with those things. I was told that that if you knew the facts but didn't know what to do with them, then you were not wise. But James seems to think that that definition sells wisdom short. James doesn't say that wisdom is knowing what to do with the right ideas. James says that wisdom is actually doing the right things with the right ideas. If you're not sure what I'm saying here, think about exercise. You might know that exercise is good and healthy for you, and in fact, without exercise, you will die. I mean, if you don't get up and walk sometimes, you will die. You may know that. And you may actually know which exercises are best for you, and you may have the wisdom to know how best to fit in exercise with your schedule to maximize your health. You may know exactly the time of day, relative to when you eat, and relative to the things in your week, how to do the best exercise to have the best health in your life. But James would say, if you don't actually exercise, you're still an idiot. Right? James doesn't say the wise person is the person who knows the exercises they should do and when they should do them. James says the wise person is the one who actually does the exercise. And in the same way, as James talks about wisdom, it's not just the knowledge of what is right. It's not even knowing when to do what is right, but it's actually doing that which is right. Look in the mirror. 
Let the text read you. Look in the mirror and let the text read you. What kind of wisdom do you have in your life? James says these are deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. What does humble wisdom look like? What does it mean to do deeds in the humility that comes from wisdom? I would like to suggest this morning that deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom are not things we post on TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook or Twitter. That the kind of humble wisdom that James is talking about are things that maybe no one ever sees unless they're really watching. Maybe it's the kind of wisdom that would otherwise go unnoticed because it's not drawing attention to itself. On the other hand, I'd like to suggest that humble wisdom, deeds done in humility, are those done without condescension towards others. Have you ever met somebody who is really wise, and maybe they're more of a wise guy than actually wise, and they always have to tell you how you can do things better? I think Lisa would feel that I am that way often. <laughs> And I'm sure some of uh, the husbands out there, uh, their wives might say that about them. But there's this sense that James says that the, the wisdom of God, when it comes into your life, you ought not to have a condescending spirit to those who you think need that wisdom in their lives. It's not going to draw attention to itself. It's not necessarily going to post and be known. It's not going to condescend over others. And it's certainly not going to lord it over them. Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. What kind of wise deeds are in your life? Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. James says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. James seems to believe that you can do the right things for the wrong reasons. That outwardly you can do all the right things and do the things that are good and holy and just. But inside, they come from a dark place. Look at the mirror. Let the text read you. Look at the mirror. And let the text read you. Are there, are there places in your lives, in our lives, where the right things come from dark or less than noble places? What is bitter envy? The word for envy, or in some translations will say bitter jealousy. The word for envy or jealousy there is zealous. It's the word that we get the, uh, the term zeal from. It's a bitter desire. It's a bitter passion for something. It's not, just, it's not just that you really want something, but it's motivated by a sense of bitterness. Where does bitterness come from? 
bitterness often comes from a lack of gratitude and a sense of entitlement. We get bitter because we think other people have what we deserve, what we think we deserve. We get bitter because somebody has what we worked for, but we don't think they worked as hard as we did. We get bitter because other people have what we have, but we don't think they deserve as much as us. We get bitter because people who care less about God seem to do better than us. We get better because we think God should do more for us. And in those moments, we start to pursue things. We pursue places and people. We pursue jobs and other things to get along and to go further, all the way trying to scratch and crawl for what we think God owes us. And in the process, we may do the right things, but they come from bitter envy. But James doesn't just talk about bitter envy. He talks about selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? It's self-centered, self-focused, self-preserving, self-protecting, self-satisfying, self-advancing, self-caring, self-focused, self-centered. It's a lot of self it's not just ambition and unbridled goal setting. It's, it's setting goals that are purely designed for self, self-advancement, self-focus, self-centeredness, self-protection, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-satisfaction. I'm not saying you can't have a successful law career or a good business or go to the best graduate schools or the best relationships. It doesn't mean you can't take advantage of opportunities. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we pursuing those things to the glory of God? Or are we pursuing them for self? Self-preservation, self-protection, self-satisfaction, self-advancement. Are we really pursuing those things because we want to give glory to God? Or have we asked God to just paint over what is actually a selfish endeavor? Have we tried to Christianize something that is self-serving? Or have we personalized God's call and glorification? Have we Christianized, tried to Christianize what is essentially something that is self-focused, self-honoring, self-self-self? Or have we taken the call to serve, honor, and glorify God and personalized it? James says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Look in the mirror. Let the scripture read you. Look in the mirror. Let the scripture read you. Have you tried to Christianize something that is self-serving? Or have you personalized God's call to glorify him? Going on. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. If you didn't catch what James is trying to get you to see, he's basically saying doing the right things for the wrong reasons is actually bad. Doing the right things isn't bad. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons 
is bad. James first says it's earthly. He says it's not from heaven, but it's earthly. When you think about the things you do and the choices you have made, have they been limited to the here and now? The things that you can see and taste? Are they limited to the people you know here in this present moment? Are they limited to things that you think you want to have happen in your life in the next 10 years? Or have you made decisions looking at eternity, thinking of the entire arc of history, that you get to be part of the great cloud of witnesses that started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that were embodied by Moses and the prophets, that you get to embody the call of God in a dark world like Paul and Peter and the apostles. When you think about the decisions you've made, have they been about living in the here and now? Or have they been made in light of eternity and the life that you will live for, forever and ever and ever? Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. Have your decisions been made in earthly reality or have they been made in light of eternity? James says these things are unspiritual. The word there is suke. Suke in the Greek represents that animated part of your life. The physical part is the soma. That's the body, the physical. The suke is the soul. It's the animated part of you. James says that there's this knowledge that is animated by something higher than base animal instinct, but it's not godly. You see, it's that knowledge that makes more than a little bit of like natural sense. It's, it's of that knowledge that if you think about it long enough, you can figure it out, and it makes more than just like, you know, my, like my dog. Car can be coming, and if he sees a squirrel, squirrel! He, 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 can't, he doesn't have that higher level thinking that will rein in. A lot of us, though, well, some of us have that problem, too, for that matter. Uh, but, uh, but we have what the scripture calls suke. It's that higher level learning that we can sometimes rein in our natural desires because we see that there's something bigger. But James says when we live in that world, apart from the spirit, it's unspiritual. There's a thing uh, called common grace. You see, common grace refers to truths that are out there in the world that people can see regardless of whether or not they are followers of Jesus. Things like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery. These are things that would represent common grace. You don't have to be a Christian to know that they're good and true. But I'd like to suggest this morning that if the wisdom that guides your life can be the same wisdom that a friend who is Buddhist, Hindu, Taoist, Confucius, or atheist would say, then maybe the wisdom that you're following in your life is not actually godly. If the wisdom that you follow in your life can be said as much by Oprah or on some podcast talk show by people who don't necessarily claim faith in Jesus, then maybe your wisdom is ungodly and unspiritual.
says it's demonic. See, most of us are okay with it being earthly. We're okay with it being higher level, just not highest level. But James says it's actually demonic. It doesn't come from God. And it's demonic because we've replaced the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man. We've replaced the perspective of God with the perspective of the here and now. We've replaced the wisdom that God gives us, who sees far more than we ever had, because he saw the beginning and the end at the exact same moments. But we've replaced the wisdom of God with, with Deepak Chopra, or Elon Musk, or Bill and Melinda Gates, or the next self-help success guru. Sometimes we just talk to people who have been successful, and we want to be like them. And at the end of the day, James isn't saying not to be discerning. But when we replace the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man, he says it's demonic. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So look in the mirror. Let the text read you. Look in the mirror and let the text read you. Do our actions reflect eternity? Do they reflect the reign of the Spirit in our lives? Do they reflect the wisdom of God? Or have our deeds reflected the knowledge of the day? The things that get common and are supported by mankind. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You see, James says, when we give our lives to the wisdom of man, and we don't let go of envy and selfish ambition, disorder and evil practice will follow. I don't need to tell you, you can read the news, you can watch the headlines, you can follow the Twitter sphere. Life and the world don't seem to be getting better to me. I see more strife. I see more disorder. I see evil happening. You know, post the Dobbs decision, people have, who have been unhappy with the decision have run to the far end. And there are places where they want to allow abortion even up to the moment of birth. They want, they, they, before what was unthinkable, that a baby at 39 weeks that could live on its own, that's thinking, breathing, sort of. It's breathing in, in ways. You just have to take my word for it. It's thinking, it can feel pain. And we as a society in some places have said that those lives are not worth protecting not even caring for it. There, there are places in this country where they're advancing bills that if, if, uh, if a baby's born, despite an attempt at an abortion, that you can kill that baby that is now alive outside the womb. You see, this is not a statement about how we should have abortion policy, church. But what I'm saying is, when we look at the news, things that were unthinkable, that our moral sensibilities said would never happen, are becoming reality. We are seeing disorder and evil spread across the globe. We're seeing senselessness happen. And James says this happens when we live out of envy and selfish ambition. Look in the mirror. 
Let the text read you. In your life, when you leave a place, is there disorder or is there peace? But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. This is crazy. How many of you pursue wisdom to be pure, submissive, and merciful? Most of us want wisdom that is effective, that is successful, that is powerful, that will help us get further along. We, we want the wisdom that will put us on top. When we think of asking somebody who is wise, we go to the wise person because they're going to help us move ahead in the world. We don't think of going to the wise person so they can tell us how to be submissive and how to be merciful. We want wisdom that is powerful, successful, effective, dominating. You know, you, you don't get the, like, how to have ripped abs in 20 days because you want to do it slowly. You want to be on top as fast as you can. You don't get the how to get rich quick and how to, like, invest in crypto to get... You're, you're reading that because you want to be on top faster, effectively. James is absurd. The kind of wisdom he thinks we ought to be looking for is complete opposite of the wisdom the world tells us we need. He first says it's pure. Hagnos is the Greek word. Hagnos. It means godlike. It's pure. It's godlike. When James talks about the wisdom that is pure, it's the kind of thing that when you do it, people say, that's what God would probably do. And when you think about your wise pursuits and the things you've done that reflect wisdom, would people look at them and say, oh, that's what God would do? Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. Your wise deeds. Is that what God would do? It's peace-loving. The word there is irenikos. Irenikos. It's peace-loving. The word irenikos that says peace-loving is not avoiding conflict. It's not the absence of strife. Irenikos is right relationship between people and between people and God. The wisdom of God is peace-loving. The wisdom of God loves right relationship between people and between people and God. If your wisdom and the things you do only make you go further faster than everybody, but does not bring right relationships with others and right relationship with God, then it is not the wisdom of God. Irenikos is right relationship with others and right relationship with God. So when you pursue wisdom, whether it is to be successful in your career or in your life or happy, are you pursuing right relationship with others and with God? Are the things you doing promoting right relationship with others and with God? 
See, Irenikos, Irenikos is right relationship with God and with others. It is peace-loving. Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. Is your wisdom peace-loving? Is it bringing harmony and human flourishing? Is it restoring people to God? It is considerate. This word considerate in some translations is gentle. And it's very interesting because the word in Greek is epi a case. Epi a case. Epi a case. Almost all the Greek scholars talk about how this term carried with it a sense of ethics and law. And so it's interesting because if I tell you I want you to be gentle, most of you don't think of ethics and the law. And if I say I want you to be considerate, most of you don't think of ethics and the law. But you see, there was this sense that true justice isn't always about the written letter of the law. That sometimes justice walks in someone's shoes first, takes into account their story, and then applies that law in a way that is compassionate and caring. Think Les Mis. In Les Mis, uh, you have an actor, Jean Valjean, who, who, who steals some bread because there, there's poverty and he has to feed a child. And, he, and then they, they go in prison and they chase after him and they imprison him for years on a barge. And then he escapes his parole and then Javert keeps chasing after him because he's pursuing the letter of the law. And the whole point of Les Mis is you get this sense that while one person is focused on the letter of the law, they are killing countless number of people by the way they apply the law. And there's this sense that that person's never walked in that other person's shoes, so as they apply the law, they have no sense of what they're doing. James says, wisdom from God is considerate and gentle because it understands the application of justice follows after walking in someone's shoes. When you think about those that you've condemned or thought less of or made judgments on, have you done it as one who's walked in their shoes, who has sought to restore them, or have you thought to beat them down? Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. It's full of mercy and good fruit. Wisdom, God's wisdom, makes us more merciful and helps us to bear good fruit. If the wisdom you have acquired has given you a bigger home and a better 401k and a deeper IRA that has survived inflation and has made you bigger and more successful, but has not manifested in good fruit that would bless others and has not made you more merciful, James would suggest that this is not the wisdom of God. Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. Where are you growing in that mercy and the good fruit? Where are your pursuits making you more merciful and bring the fruit of generosity and kindness and love? This kind of love, this kind of wisdom is impartial and sincere. 
impartial. You know, a lot of times, the wisdom of man says, go to the best schools, rub elbows with the best people, make relationships with the people who ha can help get you further along, and then you make your way in the world. The altruistic part of that says, once you get it done for you, you do it for somebody else. But the wisdom of God says, don't see people just for what they can do for you. Don't treat the rich person like, and the poor person in different ways. Don't, don't treat the, the smart person better than you treat the dumb person. Don't treat the, the strong person better than you treat the weak person. There's this impartiality. The Greek word actually also means unwavering. So some texts will say unwavering rather than impartial. And the idea is you know how to live. And just because somebody in front of you is different doesn't mean you're going to act differently. You're going to be unwavering in who you are and the way you live your life and the way you do things. And it's sincere. Some translations will say without hypocrisy. Do you dare to give advice that you would never follow yourself? Do you, do you subscribe to the good for you but not for me? There's something about being able to do the very things you call other people to do. You might call someone to trust in Jesus with their anxieties, but have you given Jesus your anxieties? You have told other people they should make God their number one, but is God your number one? You have said that I will not sacrifice my faith for things that are fading, and yet, have you made other things more important than your faith? The wisdom of God is impartial and sincere. Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. Have, have you been impartial and sincere? James ends, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. You'll notice that James, all of us, uh, as he talked about peace loving earlier, he now talks about peacemaking. The wisdom of God makes peace. It's sown in peace, it makes peace, and it yields a harvest of righteousness. James remembers Christ's word in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. When you think about your wisdom, the things you're pursuing to get better, bigger, stronger, healthier, more stable, more successful, less reliant, less needy, less broken, are you making peace in the world? Are you restoring right relationship with others and with God? Are you helping the people in your life to have right relationship with God? Or have you just simply Christianized an otherwise secular relationship? The wisdom of God calls us to be peacemakers. And in making peace, God will bring a harvest of righteousness. Look in the mirror. Let the text read you. When I think about the wisdom of God, church, I can't help but think, and I'm going to get personal, specific for a minute. Each and every one of you has been gifted and called by God. 
uniquely. There's no one in the world who can represent God like you. There's no one who can be God in the lives of those around you like you. There's nobody in your life or in the world who can spread the peace of God like you. God has uniquely and individually called each and every one of us. And we have the opportunity to respond with the wisdom of God. Nobody can love the people in my life like I do. No one can love the people in your life like you do. Nobody can show the world Jesus the way you do. God is far more colorful than we think. There's a rainbow of people here, and each and every one of you brings a different emotion, joy, tear, anger, hope, faithfulness. Everything you bring to the world, God has called you to uniquely and fully used for his glory. And far too often, church, we settle for a Christianizing of self-serving rather than personalizing the call of God to glorify him. When I think of this wisdom, I think of the prophet Nathan. Some of you may recall the prophet Nathan goes to the most powerful man in the world, King David, and he confronts him with his murderous, adulterous acts, risking his very life. Because if you don't recall, David has already had somebody killed who had gotten his way. But because Nathan puts it on the line, he promotes peace because he helps David be restored to right relationship with God. I think of Eric Little, who I talked about last week. He won the Olympics. Watch Chariots of Fire. It's one of my favorite movies. He wins the Olympics, and then he goes to China, serves as a missionary, and he ends up in a Japanese internment camp. But in that Japanese internment camp, he's a peacemaker. He helps restore relationships between captor and captives, and he helps restore them to God. So at the end of the war, there are people in Japan and China who are Christian because they spent time with him in prison. Because in the midst of prison, he said, ah, God has just given me a captive audience to preach to. I don't have to go anywhere. They're stuck. He looked at his opportunity and said, I can give this to God rather than saying what God owed him. Hey, I sacrificed. I came to the mission field. I left my home and my convenience in England to be here. I shouldn't have to deal with this. No. He said, God, you gave me an opportunity and I'm going to use it to your glory. He personalized an opportunity to bring God glory rather than trying to Christianize self-preservation. I think of uh, Margaret and Paul Brand. They were missionaries in Valor, India. Some of you may, not, may have read some of their books. Paul and Margaret Brand worked with lepers in Valor, India when no one else would. And because of their work, we discovered the cause of leprosy. We discovered the treatment for leprosy. And because of their work, we still today re-implant and attach tendons because of stuff they did. And why did they do it? Because they heard the call of God to use their gifts, talents, and calling not for their self-preservation, but for the glory of God. And they wanted to make peace, and they wanted to show that care for others. And because of that, some of you today are able to walk and do things because they discovered ways to re-implant tendons and to reconnect uh, ligaments and do things that we never had before. I think of Dennis Burkett. Some of you have heard of Burkett's lymphoma. Dennis Burkett was a missionary, and he was caring for the sick people. And he discovered lymphoma, Burkitt's lymphoma, because he was caring for people who were dying that no one else wanted to care for. And instead of saying, God, I came here to convert people, not to take care of the sick and dying, Dennis Burkitt said, oh, here's an opportunity to bring glory to God. And because of him, we discovered Burkitt's lymphoma and subsequently discovered treatments for lymphoma. 
I think of all the opportunities God has given us, church. If we will embrace the wisdom of God, if we will turn from Christianizing self-preservation and instead pursue personalizing the glorification of God. Now, we started the James at the very beginning in chapter 1, and what he says in verse 5 is this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. This is not a sermon to look in the mirror, to let the text read you, and then to feel bad about yourselves. It's not. This is a sermon that says, look in the mirror. Let the text read you. And then ask God for his wisdom to come into your life. Ask God for that spirit to stir in your life so that what you think is impossible can become possible. So that the thing that you are afraid to do becomes the very thing you can't help but do. So church, look in the mirror and let the text read you. Let's pray. Father, we've come to this time where we've looked at the word of God. And it's so easy to come up with a principle that someone else needs. But in this moment, Father, read us and help us to read ourselves because the spirit will make known to us that which is in the mirror. Father, we have lifted our lives before you. And we are unable to live these kinds of lives apart from the work of your spirit in us. We ask for wisdom, not the wisdom of man, not the wisdom of success, but the wisdom that would submit to the will of God and claim all eternity. We claim, God, we want the wisdom of God that would serve rather than be served, that would pursue the glory of God rather than the glory of man. So Father, take that which is in us that is at war with you and make it yours. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.